Appendix four of Sovereignty of God. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink. Appendix four. First John two two there is one passage more than any other which is appealed to by those who believe in universal redemption and which at first sight appears to teach that christ died for the whole human race we have therefore decided to give it a detailed examination and exposition and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world first john two two this is the passage which apparently most favors the arminian view of the atonement yet if it be considered attentively it will be seen that it does so only in appearance and not in reality below we offer a number of conclusive proofs to show that this verse does not teach that christ has propitiated god on behalf of all the sins of all men in the first place the fact that this verse opens with and necessarily links it with what has gone before we therefore give a literal word-for-word -word translation of first john two one from baxter's interlinear little children my these things i write to you that ye may not sin and if any one should sin a paraclete we have with the father jesus christ the righteous it will thus be seen that the apostle john is here writing to and about the saints of god his immediate purpose was twofold first to communicate a message that would keep god's children from sinning second to supply comfort and assurance to those who might sin and in consequence be cast down and fearful that the issue would prove fatal he therefore makes known to them the provision which god has made for just such an emergency this we find at the end of verse one and throughout verse two the ground of comfort is twofold let the downcast and repentant believer first john one nine be assured that first he has an advocate with the father second that this advocate is the propitiation for our sins now believers only may take comfort from this for they alone have an advocate for them alone is christ the propitiation as is proven by linking the propitiation and with the advocate in the second place if other passages in the new testament which speak of propitiation be compared with first john two two it will be found it is strictly limited in its scope for example in romans three twenty five we read that god set forth christ a propitiation through faith in his blood if christ is a propitiation through faith then he is not a propitiation to those who have no faith again in hebrews two seventeen we read to make propitiation for the sins of the people hebrews two seventeen r v in the third place who are meant when john says he is the propitiation for our sins we answer jewish believers and a part of the proof on which we base this assertion we now submit to the careful attention of the reader in galatians two nine we are told that john together with james and cephas were apostles unto the circumcision i e israel 
in keeping with this the apostle of james is addressed to the twelve tribes who are scattered abroad one one so the first epistle of peter is addressed to the elect who are sojourners of the dispersion first peter one one r v and john also was writing to saved israelites but for saved jews and saved gentiles some of the evidences that john is writing to saved jews are as follows a in the opening verse he says of christ which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled how impossible it would have been for the apostle paul to have commenced any of his epistles to gentile saints with such language b brethren i write no new commandment unto you but an old commandment which ye had from the beginning first john two seven the beginning here referred to is the beginning of the public manifestation of christ in proof compare one one two thirteen etc now these believers the apostle tells us had the old commandment from the beginning this was true of jewish believers but it was not true of gentile believers c i write unto you fathers because ye have known him from the beginning two thirteen here again it is evident that it is the jewish believers that are in view d little children it is the last time and as ye have heard that antichrist shall come even now are there many antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time they went out from us but they were not of us two eighteen nineteen these brethren to whom john wrote had heard from christ himself that antichrist should come see matthew twenty four the many antichrists whom john declares went out from us were all jews for during the first century none but a jew posed as the messiah therefore when john says he is the propitiation for our sins he can only mean for the sins of jewish believers in the fourth place when john added and not for ours alone but also for the whole world he signified that christ was the propitiation for the sins of gentile believers too for as previously shown the world is a term contrasted from israel this interpretation is unequivocally established by a careful comparison of first john two two with john eleven fifty one fifty two which is a strictly parallel passage in this spake he not of himself but being high priest that year he prophesied that jesus should die for that nation and not for that nation only but that also he should gather together in one the children of god that were scattered abroad here caiaphas under inspiration made known for whom jesus should die notice now the correspondency of his prophecy with this declaration of john's first john two two he is the propitiation for our believing israelites sins john eleven fifty one fifty two he prophesied that jesus should die for that nation first john two two and not for ours only john eleven fifty one fifty two and not for that nation only first john two two but also for the whole world that is gentile believers scattered throughout the earth john eleven fifty one fifty two he should gather together in one the children of god that were scattered abroad in the fifth place the above interpretation is confirmed by the fact that no other is consistent or intelligible if the whole world signifies the whole human race then the first clause and the also in the second clause 
are absolutely meaningless. If Christ is the propitiation for everybody, it would be idle tautology to say, first, He is the propitiation for our sins, and also for everybody. There could be no also if He is the propitiation for the entire human family. Had the Apostle meant to affirm that Christ is a universal propitiation, he had omitted the first clause of verse 2, and simply said, He is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, confirmatory of, not for ours, Jewish believers only, but also for the whole world, Gentile believers too. Compare John 10.16, 17.20. In the sixth place, our definition of the whole world is in perfect accord with other passages in the New Testament. For example, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world. Colossians 1, 5, 6. Does all the world here mean, absolutely and unqualifiedly, all mankind? Had all the human family heard the gospel? No. The apostle's obvious meaning is that, the gospel, instead of being confined to the land of Judea, had gone abroad, without restraint, into Gentile lands. So in Romans 1.8, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. The Apostle is here referring to the faith of these Roman saints being spoken of in a way of commendation. But certainly all mankind did not so speak of their faith. It was the whole world of believers that he was referring to. In Revelation 12.9, we read of Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. But again this expression cannot be understood as a universal one, for Matthew 24.24 tells us that Satan does not and cannot deceive God's elect. Here it is the whole world of unbelievers. In the seventh place, to insist that the whole world, in 1 John 2.2, 2, signifies the entire human race, is to undermine the very foundations of our faith. If Christ is the propitiation for those that are lost equally, as much as for those that are saved, then what assurance have we that believers too may not be lost? If Christ is the propitiation for those now in hell, what guarantee have I that I may not end in hell? The bloodshedding of the incarnate Son of God is the only thing which can keep any one out of hell. And if many for whom that precious blood made propitiation are now in the awful place of the damned, then may not that blood prove inefficacious for me? Away with such a God-dishonoring thought. However, men may quibble and rest the scriptures. One thing is certain. The atonement is no failure. God will not allow that precious and costly sacrifice to fail in accomplishing, completely, that which it was designed to effect. Not a drop of that holy blood was shed in vain. In the last great day there shall stand forth no disappointed and defeated Saviour but one who shall see the travail of his soul, and be satisfied. Isaiah 53.11 These are not our words, but the infallible assertion of him who declares, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Isaiah 64.10 Upon this impregnable rock we take our stand. Let others rest on the sands of human speculation and twentieth-century theorizing if they wish. That is their business but to God they will yet have to render an account. For our part, we had rather be railed at as a narrow-minded, out-of-date, hyper-Calvinist than be found repudiating God's truth by reducing the divinely efficacious atonement to a mere fiction. End of Appendix 4 
End of Sovereignty of God by Arthur Pink Recording by Greg Giordano, Newport Ritchie, Florida